Hi there, I'm Sandra Penman, and you're listening to Terrain, a podcast about Australian women in science. A few weeks ago, I attended the Biodiversity Across the Borders Conference at Federation Uni in Ballarat, and I was lucky enough to have a chat with climate change ecologist Professor Leslie Hughes. We spoke about her career and her approach to work, given the somewhat bleak outlook we are facing regarding our changing climate. I hope you enjoy it. Joining me today is the somewhat amazing Professor Leslie Hughes. Leslie is an ecologist who studies the impact of climate change and has been publishing on this for more than 20 years. She has an incredibly impressive CV, including being a lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC reports, and is a councillor of Australia's Climate Council. She's a key person at the interface of climate science and policy in Australia, and I'm absolutely thrilled to talk with her today. She's a distinguished professor and pro-vice-chancellor of Research Integrity and Development at Macquarie Uni in Sydney. Thanks so much for joining me, Leslie. Thanks, Sandra. So tell me about your scientific career. How did you end up becoming one of Australia's experts on climate change? Well, it was rather accidental, I suppose. I did my PhD um, back in the late 80s, early 90s on uh, ant behaviour. I um, was interested in uh, doing experiments on seed dispersal by ants and I spent about four years, because you could do a PhD over four years in those days, following ants around the bush. And, And after that, I decided I was pretty sick of following ants around the bush and was casting around for something different to do Um, and my PhD supervisor at the time said oh well you know climate change might be a thing you know so um, I thought and I didn't know anything about climate change it certainly wasn't a big issue in those days everybody would heard of it but there were very few people relatively few people studying it so I decided to write a postdoctoral application um, on doing a big translocation experiment to do with climate change to try to predict what would happen to a particular plant community in the future. And I got the postdoc, so then I had to do lots more reading about it. And the thing about climate change is that once you get into it, um, you don't ever get out of it because you realise how important it is. And, and it was really the dawning realisation over time about this as an issue that's like no other and more important than frankly any other issue Um, because without a habitable planet we don't survive nor nor does anything else on the planet so uh, once in you don't get out but I guess I got into it in that rather serendipitous way and really thinking that perhaps if I studied climate change I'd have more chance of getting a job than if I kept following ants around the bush. Did you find that um, particularly in those early days of climate change research did you find you got uh, interesting responses from people like what what was the general um, attitude towards climate change uh, research in in those uh, earlier days um, well one of the things was in those days you could practically read all the literature and keep up with it um, which is absolutely not the case now um, look I don't know. I think I got better responses from people, um, friends that were not biologists or not scientists when I said I was studying climate change than when they knew I was studying ants. You know, I remember, <laughs> one, I remember one of my friends saying, oh, well, at least you're doing something a bit useful now. You know? <laughs> so, so, so in, in fact, it was a sort of more positive thing than, than telling people that I was, you know, crawling around on my hands and knees in the National Park. Um, studying ant behaviour. So uh, it wasn't a big issue, really. Yeah. 
Did you think it would go this far when you when you first started, when you were writing that postdoc application? Mm. Did you think you'd still be doing it now? some years later? I don't think I thought ahead that far, to be honest. Um, I, I certainly thought I'd still be in ecology and conservation of, of one sort or another. That was my background and, and my passion still is. Um, I guess in those days, climate change was very much a future issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I think most of us, maybe there was some real climate scientists that recognised that things were going to happen faster than, than other people thought. But, but I was, I think, one of them that sort of kept thinking, well, this is going to be something some in the some distant future unspecified um, and it was sort of interesting at the time so it was something the the, the realization of how important it was and what an immense risk it was really only dawned on me probably over many years Uh, earlier today you gave us a talk at the biodiversity across the borders conference and something that really um really hit me was when you said more information doesn't mean more understanding. How does this change your approach uh, to science? Yes, well, the slide I showed when I said that was um, included a graph that I did a few years ago where I just went through Web of Science and and put in the terms climate change or global warming and counted up how many papers had that in the, that that came up um, in each individual year starting in about 1980. The first mention of of climate change was really in a paper in 1975, but um, it wasn't really till post the early 80s that it that sort of took off. So I counted how many papers have been published each year and each year there's more and more papers published and you know probably by now there's well over 300,000 papers in Web of Science. So this doesn't include all the social science and, and economics papers but just science papers um, that use those words somewhere in the title or the abstract or the keywords. Um, and it's, I've also, as you said, been um, involved in two of the IPCC reports, which uh, I was in the fourth and the fifth assessment reports as a, as a lead author on the Australasian chapter. Um, and each one of those major reports um, is, uh, for each of the working three working groups, is, is well over a thousand pages, just our chapter on Australasia had in the last assessment report over a thousand references. Yet when we look around at what action has been taken in a really concerted way, while there is a lot of action, it's still not managing to turn down emissions. So it's really dawned on me over time that simply doing research of any sort, if our only output is a, is a paper in a scientific journal, we would be very naive to think that most of the time that has an impact, mm. which is sort of different to my idealistic um, view of the world when I became a scientist in the first place. I sort of thought, well, you know, all I have to do is do the science, write the paper, and then somebody will take some notice and do something. And that just doesn't happen. So over time, it's become really apparent to me that simply doing the research, simply putting more words out there in the scientific literature in and of itself doesn't make much of a difference. It's what you do with it then. So over time, my research areas have really changed. I, I spent probably the first 20 years really focused on predicting impacts on species and ecosystems for some future date. 
Um, and really probably over the last five or ten years I've really moved much more into trying to work with policymakers, talk to policymakers, work on climate change adaptation um, and really become a communicator about climate change to the public because I think that's where I can make more of a difference than if I just keep churning out more and more learned scholarly papers no matter how good they are. You also mentioned that um, by the actions and policies that have happened over time, we've committed to a a temperature increase of at least two degrees. How do you show up at work? How do you (laughs) remain hopeful in that kind of scenario? Yeah. Well, those figures come from a thing called the carbon budget approach, which is um, the, the... fairly simple calculation to do, which is to estimate, because we, we understand the relationship between carbon dioxide and temperature increase pretty well from a physical point of view, that means you can do an estimation that um, to get to a certain level of warming, how much carbon dioxide has to still be put into the atmosphere, and that's called the carbon budget. So you can estimate, just like a household budget, you know how much you've spent and how much you've got left over to achieve that, that, that aspiration or, or to stay under that aspiration which is what we're trying to do Um, and it's generally I think most climate change scientists um, who know a lot more climate science than I do um, would consider that um, staying underneath 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels we've already had one degree uh, staying under 1.5 is practically impossible um, without you know basically collapsing the world's economic system Um, So we've got to kind of try, it's a good aspiration, um, but realistically, the point I was making this morning was that we have to plan for at least two degrees and not be starry-eyed about 1.5 because we're already getting really serious impacts um, at at one. Um, Your question about how I keep going to work and remain hopeful, well, my attitude these days is that hope Um, I regard as a strategy rather than an emotion. I mean, it is an emotion as well, um, but it's also a strategy that we actually have to employ because if you don't have hope, then you give up, and if you give up, then, you know, we're screwed. So I don't think there's any choice but to be hopeful. So for me, remaining hopeful is quite a conscious decision. Um, The quote I like to use quite often is... um, from a, a guy who's a 19th century uh, Marxist politician in Italy who he wasn't talking about climate change obviously but he talked about the tension between the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will and for me that really sums up the brains of people that work on climate change you know at one level half your brain is saying well look at the facts look at the figures look how bad it's going to be the other half is to say well I have to be optimistic to keep going so that sort of sums up a somewhat schizophrenic attitude to my to my job I suppose I think I could take a lot from (laughs) from, uh, incorporating that approach I think it's um yeah quite quite insightful thank you I guess um I just wanted to to finish up today by asking you uh, what advice would you give to women or other people earlier Mm -hmm. on in their scientific careers yeah um science is a great career uh, there's nothing more exciting than discovering something that somebody else doesn't know about and bringing that to attention. You know, I don't think there's anything more exciting than doing that. Uh, the other thing is that 
you know, we, we need more science, we need more communication of science. Um, women do it just as well as men and some things they do a lot better. So I would absolutely encourage women to, to take up a scientific career if if that's what interests them. I've, I have to say I have failed to inspire my own daughter to do that. She's, <laughs> she's doing history and international studies. Um, but setting that aside, uh, I think it's good to have female role models in senior positions in science. Looking back in my own career, I don't think I had that. You know, there mm. were some senior people in my in my department, obviously, who were at professor stage, a very small handful, um, but I didn't really have a lot to do with them. So I, I, I found it difficult to identify female role models. So maybe it wasn't so important for me to do that. But I think for a lot of people, it is. I think it's... Um, great to be able to see not just sort of being a woman but actually being a woman who has managed to have a family and have a life outside work you know there's lots of things I enjoy doing that really don't have anything to do with climate change or or with science Um, I have two kids and um, you know I think lots of friends and and a close family so uh, I think that that's as important as anything to actually show young women that it's not a matter anymore if it ever was of choosing a career or a family Um, having a family does affect how your career progresses but it's certainly possible to be a successful scientist with a really enjoyable and satisfying career and and have a great family and and home life at the same time. Thank you so much for um, uh, giving me a few minutes of your time I realise it's quite precious but it's um, been an, an absolute thrilled talking to you today it's a pleasure thank you (laughs) thanks you've been listening to terrain you can find me on twitter and instagram using the handle terrain podcast and of course by searching terrain podcast in your favorite podcast app all music is by shauna ellen o'neill who is a female composer from sydney check out the show notes for links to hear more of her work talk to you soon